0: Hi there, this is Thomas Spain, one of your hosts for the Best Practices podcast series from the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network. As you may have noticed, only our favorite episodes of Best Practices are archived now on your preferred podcast platform. But don't worry, if you want all the best practices for quality improvement and practice transformation that we have to offer, all 22 episodes of this podcast series are now available on the Mid-South PTN YouTube channel. That's the Mid-South PTN YouTube channel, and the link is available in the podcast show notes. Thanks, and enjoy this
1: episode.
2: Welcome to the Best Practices, the podcast where we explore the best stories of healthcare practice transformation from the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network, our network a member of the National Transforming Clinical Practices Initiative supports over 4,000 primary and specialty care clinicians across Tennessee, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Arkansas as they lead their practices to thrive in a value based healthcare environment. And now, your hosts, Dr. Thomas Spain and Kirkland Ahern Jones.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Best Practices. I am Kirkland Ahern-Jones, the Director of Operations for the Mid-South PTN Practice Transformation Network. And I am here with my co-host.
0: I'm Dr. Thomas Spain. I'm a primary care physician, the Director of Practice Transformation at the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network.
1: So, Thomas, um, this is a really unique opportunity, what we're doing here as part of this Um, episode and for the next episode is we had an opportunity to interview lane styles and he's the director of patient education here at um at vanderbilt university medical center and it was wonderful to sit down with him what we normally do is uh in best practices is we sit down and we open up our podcast and we interview a guest and we run all the way through the episode but This was such an amazing interview with Lane and he has such a deep subject matter expertise in so many areas that we ended up going on in this interview and it ended up being a 45 minute or 50 minute interview. And so it was just such a great, um, just such great content. Um, you and I decided to, uh, split this up into a couple of parts. And so I'd love for you to, um, to talk about what we decided to put in this episode, Lane, is somebody you've worked with alongside for quite a while.
0: Sure. Well, I agree with you. It was a great interview, and it just kept going, and the, the further it went, it just kept getting better. So we uh, broke it into two episodes, and in the first episode, we're going to talk with Lane about what shared decision-making is. We're going to talk about the kinds of problems that practices address with shared decision-making, a little about how to use decision aids, And how to get started as a practice. And then in the second episode, what we really talk with Lane about are some of the challenges of implementing shared decision-making. And I think that the second episode got more personal, right? We were sharing some examples from our histories as family members, as patients, as a physician, as someone who's worked with clinicians. And um, and I think that um, those examples, I think, are going to resonate with our audience, the people in our audience who are working with practices or who are on the front lines really trying to implement shared decision-making. So I'm excited that we have the opportunity to break it into two episodes. And I really, for our listeners, I think these are, these are going to be great episodes. So I'm glad you're listening.
1: Yeah, and I really look forward to uh, hearing this all the way through again. Lane is somebody who... He said in the interview that he's retiring next year, and so I'm glad he's somebody who lives right here in Nashville, so we can continue to uh, work with him and learn from him for a long time.
0: Well, let's listen into the first part of our interview with Lane Styles. So I want to welcome Lane Stiles. Lane is the Director of Patient Education at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and I have found, like I said, him to just be a a rich resource on the topic of shared decision making. Lane, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm going to kick things off with a question, and that question is, could you just explain for us and our listeners what is shared decision making?
3: When I talk about shared decision-making, I try to demystify it as much as possible because I think sometimes you can get overwhelmed by all the acronyms and all the models and uh, all the details of it, and I try to put it into two large contexts. One is thinking about this as a patient engagement strategy, and it's, it's one of a whole toolkit of patient en- engagement strategies that we want to be, be able to access And when we think about it that way, we realize it uses elements of patient-centered communication that we should be using in our usual care routinely every day. Practices like clear communication, health literacy, teach-back, active listening, motivational interviewing. So we've put it into that broader context, and that really relates to the uh, issues of of, uh, value-based reimbursement. Because unless we engage patients, we're not going to get the outcomes to achieve our reimbursement goals. And the second way I like to think about it is as focusing on it as a, a very simple decision process. Um, There are a lot of models out there and I'll talk, I can talk about some of them as we go along. But one thing I try to do is I take a, a, one of them that's called uh, uh, choice talk, option talk and decision talk and even break that down even more so that, there are there are certain basics to to deci- all kinds of decision making not just shared decision making and so I try to get help people think about that rather than to memorize some kind of acronym for example, the first thing that you have to do is you have to have a choice you have to have one or more options to choose from now you can 't A patient can't make that choice unless they're told they have a choice. So the provider has to be aware of that choice as well and to present it to the patient. And then for that patient to consider the choice, they have to be invited. They have to be given permission to participate actively, and they have to be given a reason to participate actively because culturally we often put patients in a very reactive role. And uh, we don't invite them to actively participate, and that's absolutely crucial for engagement. So that's the first phase of decision-making, having a choice, knowing you have a choice, and uh, being asked to invite, uh, to participate in making that choice. Uh, Then there's a, a, a second step. Where you have to give the you have to have the information to make a choice, and that's where we give patients all kinds of information, uh, risk benefits, probabilities to help them understand what a decision might be, uh, how it might work out for them. And then finally, you have to make the choice. This is pretty simple stuff. Uh, this is where we get into something special, though, because sh- it's this where the shared and shared decision making comes out. This is a collaborative conversation between the patient and a provider, balancing the wants and preferences of that patient with the expertise of the provider. This should be an equipoise. It should be perfectly balanced. So at this point, and this is the most difficult, nuanced piece of this, the, patient, the provider needs to elicit the patient's needs, wants, and preferences about that, what the information they've been given and the choices that they have. And then that provider needs to carefully facilitate this decision. Helping the patient choose what they believe is the right decision for them. There's a lot of elements that we could delve into uh, that that uh, uh, help, would help illuminate that, but that's that's kind of the general approach I take, trying to make people understand that it's not as complicated as it seems. It's just a basic approach to engaging patients.
0: That was really helpful, Lane. Thank you for breaking it out that way. I, I agree. I think the The choice option decision framework, which is something I was introduced to by you, is a really simple way to remember uh, these elements and begin to break down um, and, as you said, demystify shared decision-making. At the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network, we frequently talk about these best practices in the context of a problem and then the best practice being a solution for that problem and then the outcomes that come from the solution from the best practice as an as an intervention and so as we think about shared decision making could you talk with us a little bit about the problem what what are the problems in practice that shared decision making really helps address
3: i think they're you know broadly they're related to patient engagement in general Um, we know that when patients are involved and they own a decision They're much more likely to follow a care plan. They're much more likely to take their meds as prescribed. They're much more likely to be satisfied with their care, and they're much more likely to accept outcomes, even adverse ones. Um, A lot of times we approach shared decision-making through preference-sensitive decisions. Historically, that's how this uh, work started. And A preference-sensitive decision is when Uh, It's a medical decision for which the clinical evidence does not clearly support one treatment option over another. So choosing the appropriate course of treatment is based on the patient's preferences, based on their understanding of their risks, benefits, and likely outcomes and their, uh, what, what is important to them in their lives. But I, you know, and a good, there's good reasons to focus on those. It, it narrows down the number of decisions. Say, if you're going to build this into uh, your EMR in your uh, practice, or you were looking for uh, patient decision aids, which we could talk about a little bit more what those are, but they help, they, have, they f- help the patient uh, come to a decision and provide information and, and, and elicit their preferences. But I would, I you know, in terms of these larger issues, in terms of patient engagement, I would make an argument for looking at shared decision making in a much more general way, going beyond just preference sensitive decisions. Uh, Right now, about twenty to thirty prescriptions that we write for our patients are never filled. About half the medications for chronic diseases are not taken as prescribed uh those who take their meds only take about half the prescribed doses 40% of heart patients heart attack patients don't take their blood pressure meds there's a, all kinds of statistics like this and that's just focusing on medication adherence and i would argue that one of those reasons is that the patient didn't own the decision it they didn't they weren't inv- asked to uh be involved in making the decision about the medication that was uh, a, a, uh prescribed for them If we look at if we could get the patient to buy into that decision to take a medication, even if when they're asymptomatic, and this is a special problem if you have a new diagnosis of diabetes or hypertension where you're non-asymptomatic, we really have really poor medication adherence. If we could get them to buy into that decision up front using shared decision-making techniques, we would solve a lot of the problems downstream. And we'd see a lot better results across the whole uh, our whole continuum of care so that's that's some large ways that we can think about the Im- importance of shared decision making in terms of solving problems
0: i think that was helpful lane you mentioned decision aids mm-hmm. and so at risk of jumping forward a bit i think that takes us into the the really the option talk i think part of your framework but can you talk a little about decision aids what they are how they're used and how you've seen them really used effectively
3: sure uh, decision aids are tools to help people participate in decision making about healthcare options. It's that simple. They typically provide uh, information about the options that you have and they, ideally, they help you clarify uh, your, the risk benefits and, and potential harms and outcomes uh, related to those choices. Um, one of the ones I like a lot is by Mayo, and it's one that they developed for statins. Uh, One one of the reasons I like it a lot is because they are able, using some uh, uh, databases that have been uh, around cardiac uh, uh, health that have been collected over the years, to really personalize risk. That's one of the challenges we have sometimes when we're trying to make risk uh, uh, understandable for patients, we give them this kind of global risk, no matter what their age, gender, you know what morbidities they have, what uh, you know what their health status is, and this one. And unfortunately, we can't do this a lot, but we can with this uh, Mayo. Uh, it's on. It's on whether or not statins would be good for you to start taking statins. And so what I like about it is how it communicates risk. It first takes your health profile based on like the Framingham or some other index like that and it makes a visual picture of it. And it's just a 10 by 10 array. So it's got 100. It's a picture of a percentage. In other words, you've got a 100 little figures there and it will say this many people based on your particular profile will have a heart attack in the next 10 years if they don't take a statin. You can see it. It's just really obvious. And then if, if then they uh, On the other side they, they can say Here's what it would look like If you did person with your profile It's not necessarily you But a person with your profile Were to start taking statins Maybe uh, half of those people Would not have a heart attack And half still would So you can see it really clearly what the benefit is. You don't have to understand a percentage. One of the problems we have in this country, uh, you know, we have, we talk about health literacy. One of the components of health literacy is numeracy. As low as, as, as our general literacy is in this country, our numeracy is even lower. So that's, that's a problem that we have. And risk and percentages and probabilities are one of those areas that are particularly hard for people. But this is a very concrete visual way to see it. And what I like about it, too, is it, it communicates that risk in an absolute way. And what, about, what I mean by that is it's very easy to nudge or push patients to a decision by confusing relative risk and absolute risk. For example, in that statin example, I'm going to take an extreme uh, case, but let 's say two people out of a hundred would have a heart attack in the next ten years without statins. That person those two people take the statins, and then only one of them would have a heart attack, and one of them uh, would not have a heart attack as, as a general rule. Well, that's you could say that that reduces your risk by fifty percent, and if I wanted you to take statins, I could say, I can reduce your risk of heart attack by fifty percent. But if you see it in absolute terms, this, this concrete image side by side, you can see, well, that's only one person out of 100. That's a 1% absolute risk that maybe I don't want to have the expense or the possible complications, although statins are safe. But the, I, I need to balance that small gain against whatever uh, costs and risks there are associated with taking statins. So that, I, I'm really fond of that decision aid, but as I say, one of the things we struggle with right now is how we we don't have enough indexes like that that we can personalize risk for everybody. So that's a challenge we have to deal with. Um, there are all kinds of other decision aids out there. They're freely available on the internet, lots of them. Uh, there's a number of institutions that have developed them. There's just templates that you can uh, uh, f- use that uh, you can fill it in yourself and develop your own uh, uh, patient decision aid. There's a bunch of them on the uh, ARC, the a- Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality website. There's a toolbox there for shared decision-making. It has a lot of wonderful resources, including patient decision aids. One th- here's my big caveat while I'm t- thinking about this in terms of patient decision aids. They are not meant to replace that collaborative conversation between the provider and the patient. That is really what defines shared decision-making. So I know that sometimes we get busy and we want to say, let's send the patient off by themselves, let them fill this out. When they come back, they can tell us what they want. That's not what it's supposed to do. It's to give them information and education. It's to help them understand risks and benefits help them clarify, because lots of times they haven't yet articulated their preferences well, so it helps them articulate their preferences to bring to that conversation with the provider. And that's where the decision is made back and forth between the provider, the provider's expertise and the patient's preferences. So it, it, what we can do is if it's possible, depending on the workflow we're working in, it's not always possible to do this because uh, people come in for a consult and, that, and a decision is made at that time or a diagnosis is made at that time. So there's not always a chance to send something home with a patient to consider over time. Ideally, that's what we would like them to do, have time to consider uh, sometimes we book a surgery or a procedure in, in, in that initial consult, so we'd have to work through the patient decision aid in that consult. And there are some aids that are meant just to be handled in that consult and not to be sent home independently with the patient. But big, that's there's not a magic bullet for shared decision making in this regard. You cannot give something to the patient, let them fill it out on their own and come back and magically they're going to make a decision. You have to have that conversation and and you have to make sure that you've elicited the patient's preferences and understand that and the patient understands it and, and the patient is sure that the decision they're made is the right one for them.
1: Lane, this is Kirkland. Let me ask a um, a question. This is so helpful. Um, and actually, while you were talking, I pulled up uh, shareddecisions.mayoclinic.org and actually Mayo mm-hmm. is one of our Um, our PTN partners in the TCPI, um, the TCPI space. There's so many decision aids that they have listed. And, um, so our audience for best practices is not only within our PTN, um, but also thinking of leaving a legacy beyond, um, beyond TCPI. We want this podcast to, um to transmit to other practices that have not yet done this right mm-hmm. so um is there a best practice for beginning this so would it be ahrq would it be mayo clinic would it be contacting um lane styles and figuring <laughs> out how to how to go about this and and set this up um because because it seems to me that this is this takes a robust um You know, it takes a robust set of experience in medical education, clinician experience, um, education in the, in the disease that you're treating. You know, how does, um, how does the practice set up a set of standards for the patient that's going to be coming in?
3: Probably. One option or one strategy would be to focus on maybe a specific type of decision. Decision, say, if you're in an orthopedic practice, um, having a joint replacement versus medical options, pain management, physical therapy, where you you know where it was it was a smaller test, and you could uh, uh, you could structure that in, in various ways, locate some decision aids. Another way to think about it would be, is what, you know, what I started out saying, is that this is a patient engagement strategy that's linked to other patient engagement strategies. So the staff, all staff should be trained in how to do teach back, for example. And that's something, you know, rationally you may understand it, but it takes practice to do it well. And so there ought to be you know, if you develop that technique for good teach back and routinize it in clinical encounters, whenever there's an exchange of significant information, uh, and make it routine, so it's not just shared decision making. You're using it with informed consent. You're using it with everything that you do when you talk to patients and share information with them. Active listening, learning how to do that, being fully present uh, for that uh, patient, um, motivational interviewing. I go it, it, when we think about. Engaging patients um, to, to achieve our, our outcomes in a value based reimbursement world. We really need to get good at joint goal setting with patients, and a lot of that depends on being able to let, help patients set goals for themselves. And that's, you know, that mental, motivational interviewing is really important for that. If we just tell a patient to lose weight or quit smoking, we know it's never going to happen. But if we talk, start talking with a patient about what is important to them, and really listening intently, reflecting back what they tell us, and we can arrive at a goal that they define that's very concrete. It might be a very small goal to begin with. Say if we're looking for something to lose weight, and they are going to commit to uh, walking uh, around the block three times a day every day for the next few weeks. So, and they commit to it. It's their idea. It's their decision. They're committed. If they achieve that goal, which they should be achievable, they start developing self-efficacy. We can build on those goals. We can add to them over time. Those kinds of skills we need to build in anyway. So um, if we don't think of shared decision-making as being this little silo or, this, or just the next great idea or a separate project, but we think about it as incorporating all the tools that we should be using with patient-centered communication and patient engagement – then those things transfer from every kind of conversation we have to another one and everything that we do with patients routinely every day. So that's one way to think about it. It doesn't really have to be a huge endeavor to start out with or, 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 or require a lot of skills. These are skills that we should be developing anyway and they'll apply to a lot of the things we want to do. Thomas,
1: that was such an extraordinary interview with Lane Styles, and I am actually grateful that the interview went so long and we had the opportunity to split it into two episodes. There were so many wonderful pieces of that and nuggets of information. What's your favorite part?
0: You know, when Lane mentioned that shared decision-making is simple on one level, that Rationally, you may understand it, but that it really takes practice to learn to do it well. I thought that was one of the most important things that he said. And I think it just shows why it's been so important that this is something that we really wanted to put emphasis behind in our work with our practices in the practice transformation network, because we can teach a practice really quickly what shared decision making is, but it's something that they really have to practice as a team and as clinicians to really press it into their practice with patients and begin to get the benefit of it.
1: That is a great example. I remember the first time I saw a shared decision-making infographic, and on one side it has informed consent, and on the other side it has a picture of um, mutual um, consent and and it's logical, but it takes practice because we're in the habit of just receiving information as a patient and just being told what to do and check yes or no, and, and it does take practice. So that's a great example.
0: It really does. I'm looking forward to next week for the second part of this episode because we really sort of dig into some of that, right, in our conversation with Lane and share some personal examples, and I, I, I look forward to sharing that with our listeners next week.
1: Well everybody, be sure to look in the show notes down below where we have uh, we have many links to shared decision making resources and um, and of course to Lane Styles. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Best Practices. Be sure to tune in next week for the second part in this two-part episode of
2: Best Practices. Have a great day. You have been listening to Best Practices, a podcast showcasing the best of the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network's primary and specialty care practices that have undergone substantial quality improvement transformation and the subject matter experts that have enabled this work as part of the CMS Initiative TCPI. For more information, we invite you to visit midsouthptn.com. Subscribe to Best Practices and hear all of our transformation stories. This work was funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, under grant number 1CMS 331549-03-00. The contents provided are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or any of its agencies. The views and opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Vanderbilt University Medical Center or its affiliates, and they may not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes.